Previously on The Remnant with Jonah Goldberg. We have in the studio today one of my legitimately favorite historians, David Pietrusha. Say it. Say it for me. Pietrusha. Jonah and David surveyed the six presidents of the year 1920. And then they said, what do you want to do as an option book? Uh And I was playing a mental game, which is how many presidents in any given year are competing and 1920 was the winner with the – that's why it's the year of the six presidents. Right. And you don't get that in other years. But all along, a sinister figure lurked in the background. Woodrow Wilson, history's greatest monster. In this episode, Jonah and David attempt to defeat the historical creature known as President Wilson. Will they succeed or will Wilson's legacy linger another day? You're about to find out on this episode of The Remnant with Jonah Gold. So let's move on to part two. Talking about how – I think this is an interesting way to get into it. You were talking a little while ago um, about how Woodrow Wilson was this southerner and he surrounded himself with southerners. And he's – he grows up in a foreign country. First few years of his life – or not first few but after like from four to eight – the Confederacy is a different country. No, that's true. Uh, that's right. That's absolutely right. He's the last guy to have grown up in a house that was slaveholding, I think. Well, this this I I I, I saw this was interesting. His um, father did not. No, his father was a minister. Right. So you get the house provided for you, right? Okay. A, confe- a major Confederate minister. and a, and yeah. and a uh, organizer of the Southern Presbyterian Church or whatever, and was a chaplain for the armies. He didn't own slaves. He rented slaves. <laughs> the, the congregation did not – we're just going to rent a slave. That's an important well, – that's an, I had it's never, not an important distinction. It's an interesting distinction. I've never, I've never considered such a thing before. Um, that's interesting because I've seen references that he lived in a household that had slaves and I thought, you know, slaves are expensive and how does a Presbyterian minister – but that explains it. That explains it. it. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. OK. Um, now, John Milton Cooper – Yes. Makes the case. And I am sympathetic to this, is that the Southern stuff is exaggerated as an explanation of Woodrow Wilson's views. It's not to say that he wasn't a Southerner. He did say that he thought it was a shame that the South lost the war. But his race— A lot of Southerners did that. Sure. That was very common. Sure, sure, sure. You look at D.W. Griffith says the same thing. Sure. Oh, look, I, I understand why Southerners would – anybody who loses a war tends to regret losing a war. Well, I, I'm, I'm not – that's not my point. My point is is that when people – when the subject of, say, Woodrow Wilson's racism comes up, um, people say, well, well, it makes sense. He grew up in the South. He, they were Confederates and yada, yada, yada. And Cooper makes the case that in, in that the racism was much more in line with a kind of – a northern progressive racism. It was Darwinian. It was eugenic. It was, you know, his book, The State, he, which I've It could read. be both a floor wax and a breath mint. No, no, no. I agree with that. I agree with that. But my point is, is that, you know, for example, this gets to a much larger – Josephus Daniels, who we brought up earlier. Yeah. Right? Lots of – the argument that you hear today from lots of serious people is that the – Democrats of the South were all racist. 
that they were they were really conservatives and now they're just Republican. They're not all they, the the Democrat Party was not all conservative. Well, th- that's my point. Is that the take a look at George Wallace? Right. Take a look at his. Who, his by the way, his, I looked it up. Won the boss. Won the Massachusetts primary in seventy six. Oh, okay. not the Massachusetts primary in Boston. Boston. He, he took yeah, because yeah. of busting. Right. I was looking it up because of busting. Uh, you know his early mentor, Big Jim Folsom, was a progressive sort of Democrat. The two Democrats from Alabama at that time, Sparkman and Lister Hill. Sparkman was uh, 1952 running mate. And Stevenson were both liberals. Yeah. Fulbright was a liberal. Sure. No, exactly. That's exactly right. Ralph Yarborough from Texas was a liberal. And so Albert Gore Sr. Right. And this, this is my point is that. Or Keith Offer. The, the, the effort to take. To say that, oh, yeah, Democrats were racist and then when the Democratic Party stopped being racist, all of those guys came, became Republicans. It misses a really important point, which was that the segregationists, the people who were actually supporters of Jim Crow, lots of them were progressives in favor of the eight-hour workday, in favor of child labor laws, the biggest big backers of the New Deal – and the idea that so many of the things in terms of economics that progressives think ooh, is inconsistent ooh. with racism as, is just not true. As Gunther Twitty said on Car 54. Ooh. ooh. <laughs> Who was one of the sponsors of the Tennessee Valley Authority in the House? John Rankin. You know who John Rankin was? I remember the name, yeah. But The the winner of the the most anti-Semitic member of Congress <laughs> ever award. I got to look him up. He was defending Alger Hiss in the hearings. Because Hiss was being accused or because he was being accused by Jews. Is that right? Yeah. And if you go back, I mean, there's a wonderful, it's deeply depressing, but this guy Thomas Lettering at Princeton wrote a book called Illiberal Reformers. And his work, the book came out after uh, liberal, my book, Liberal Fascism, came out. But his his academic work, I got a lot out of for nice stuff about eugenics. Richard E. Ellie, mm-hmm. the, the the intellectual lodestar of progressive economics was a dedicated eugenicist. Almost the entire Wisconsin school, all these guys that buildings at the University of Wisconsin are named after, the people who came up with minimum wage laws that were pro-union, the Davis-Bacon Act, all of those things come out of, not out of Southern conservatism, not out of Southern agrarians, but out of progressivism. And there were Southerners who were progressives and there were Northerners who were progressive. But there was a deep strain of eugenics and racism that ran through progressivism that had nothing to do with being Southern. That's the only point I'm trying right. to get at. And, and going even further back when conservatives may say, well, every member of the Confederacy was a Democrat. Alexander Stevens, the vice president, was a Whig. Oh, you know, it? there were Whigs in the South before right. Zachary Taylor was a Whig. He was from Louisiana, okay, and Kentucky. Yeah. We're not going to get into the Whigs. Just... Okay. All right. All <laughs> right. So far afield we can All right. <laughs> um, just, just saying. Fair enough. All right. So the case against Wilson on the racism stuff, which I think is important because people don't know it, but it's also the thing that people are finally starting to pay attention to, and there are other horrible things about Wilson that I want to get to. But Wilson is the guy who – he's the first Southerner since Reconstruction to become president, and – he comes into Washington and the Dixiecrats kind of think he's going to bring this this sort of restoration of sort of – if not – certainly not the Confederacy but the sort of southern racism stuff. It doesn't necessarily go as far as they wanted but what he does do is he resegregates the federal government. Right. And my understanding is that the practice of requiring 
photos of job applicants and yes. the government. He, it's his administration that pioneers that because that's the way you could tell if someone's black even if they have a quote-unquote white-sounding right, white right. name. He was also sympathetic to eugenic stuff, not nearly as much. It wasn't a big part of his There's identity. There's a 1911 law, uh, a sort of sterilization law when he's governor of New Jersey uh, and his big eugenics advisor is a fellow who has a um, – Hyphenated name. He's a hyphenated American. <laughs> but the last part is Ellen Bogan. I know because right. I worked with an Ellen Bogan in, when I was designing office space. And Ellen Bogan gets ended up uh, – he's Jewish ethnically. He's Catholic convert. He gets captured in France by the Nazis during the war, when the war breaks out and they send him to a concentration camp. And to like run eugenics. Yeah, no, he does. On, yeah. He's like a junior league Mengele. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And – Which is not to say Woodrow Wilson was involved in that. No, 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 no. But nonetheless. Nonetheless. <laughs> but it does show you the, I mean, the, the, the connection. It was to sterilize criminals and the feeble-minded. Right. The connections between the American eugenics movement and the German eugenics movement, which – Pretty strong. Pretty strong, and there's lots of cross-pollinization yeah. going on there. And if you read Margaret Sanger's Birth Control Review, they say all sorts of things about Germans and how they're they're beating us at our own game. <laughs> and, you know, I recall how Wilson supported uh, Henry Ford in 1918 for the Senate. That, that would make sense. Yeah. Um, That's before Ford gets started with the Dearborn Independent and right. running the protocols of Elders, the Elders of Zion, Zion. Yeah. and the International Jew and stuff like that. But nonetheless, he might have had some inkling. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about Woodrow Wilson for a second. I'm not even sure where to begin. George Will has this great new book out called The Conservative Sensibility, which beats the tar out of Wilson. George's famous take on Wilson is that he wanted some building to be put someplace on the Princeton campus. He lost that fight, and in a hum in a harumph, he left academia, joined politics, and ruined the 20th century. <laughs> and a good deal to be said about that. Yeah. It's, it, it's a bit squashed. Yeah, it's pithy. It's pithy. <laughs> um, all right. So give me your, you know, what is your the, the take on Woodrow Wilson? Well, the starting with the will thesis, uh -huh. the what is really left out of that is that Wilson always wanted power and had delusions of power, right. that he was going to be a great leader he and leader like in leader, right, right, okay, right. Um, starting from very, very young age, which is kind of interesting because from a very young age, he's not college material <laughs> as you know, he doesn't learn the alphabet until he's nine. He doesn't learn how to read and write, write until he's 11. So he's a very slow starter. He's a dyslexia, right? It, it may have been. We, you know, we really don't know. Yeah. But it, it, it's when, when something maybe was something you know you outgrow like that. Nelson Rockefeller was dyslexic, and his mother said they thought he was stupid. So his mo his mother thought he was stupid. Nelson, you must always surround yourself with smart people because you're <laughs> stupid. <laughs> and that's why he hired Henry, and that's why we have Ke Henry Kissinger. <laughs> So, um, so, but he 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 has this this longing for power, and he drops out of Davidson College because he can't hack it there. He can't hack it. He's home for like a, a year and a half. He he drops out. I think either that or when he's in law school for like stomach problems for a year and a half. I think it's something else. Yeah, I'm just guessing. 
Uh, he's, you know, he goes to live in his parents' basement. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, he wants and this. And, and who's and, and and how does he see power being structured? He sees it being structured in an un-American way or a non-American way. Not the American system, not the Constitution, not checks and balances. He sees it in the English parliamentary model. Right. Until he finds Hegel, but gone. Well, until <laughs> until he finds Theodore Roosevelt, yeah. who is shifting the balance of power in 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 the federal hierarchy. Okay, um, so he wants that, and who's his? He he looks to English Parliament, not the American system. His again, not to make too much of it, mm. but his idea of of the American congressional system being this this crazy yelling and screaming don't get anything done power is diffused and no one is held responsible is the same thing that hitler describes in mein kampf when he goes to see the austrian parliament and they're throwing chairs at each other right. and and there's no one no one has 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 responsibility i'll take that responsibility if you don't mind right and but wilson is basically the same idea and again from from nowhere as a nobody when he's in college he's handing out business cards woodrow wilson or thomas woodrow wilson you know us senator from virginia he's got these <laughs> these dreams of glory early on he has a classmate in who he writes to afterwards and says, you know, you and I, if we had like a dozen people who thought like us, we could all write for journals and <laughs> and take over the United States of America and have power <laughs> and also the power of oratory. Right. We think he's this this because he's this really guy who looks like Don Knotts in a top hat that he's got. Right. No, that's the Roosevelt. Right. Uh, Wilson has this manly voice and is a great orator and can talk to crowds very powerfully. And the stuff which he talks about, again, in in his early writings and the power of oratory, how it leads to power and how you have to, you know, paint things in a broad brush and all this so that these morons listening to you, you know, will will obey is again, right. you know, and, like and that. And as I say, leaders of men, right? Yeah. He basically makes the case that you got to – Wave the bloody toga to rouse up the yeah. crowd, and yeah, this is not this is not wonderful stuff, right? And this is very early on in his life, before he gets to Princeton. He didn't want to go to Princeton. He was going. Through, it's like this doesn't make sense to become president from Princeton. You go and uh, become president, or probably Speaker of the House, or you know, uh, through the law. So that's why he's going to the University of Virginia Law School. But he's a flop. He doesn't get one client as a, as a private attorney. So it's like, I can't think of anything else to do. I'll become an academic. Right. And rises and rises and rises from that. When he becomes president of Princeton, they, uh, previously the, the board of trustees had the power over hiring and, f- hiring and firing of all faculty. He those says, were the days. Those were the days. <laughs> he says, I want that. I want the power. And he gets it. Then later on, he says, I think I should have the power to name the board of trustees. At this point, they're starting to become a little nervous about this. But there's, there's, there's two big struggles at Princeton. One is over something called dining clubs. Right. Which are sort of like frats, I guess. I don't know. 
and and how you how, how he's going to break down the the influence or the uh, the social privilege the social privileges yeah. of the rich doofuses who get admitted to to Princeton and, and this is a big struggle. And it's important to remember back then schools like Princeton were not strictly meritocratic right i mean this was like no. who you know yeah it was a yeah. bastions of privilege also again getting back to the southern thing princeton is known as is a very southern oriented college uh-huh. he goes to some steps to make sure that no uh blacks are going to be admitted to princeton uh so you've got you've got that thread running through there but there's a plan he puts through all these reforms he has the support of a guy named dean andrew west Head of the graduates department, and they're going. To, they want to build a new graduate school complex building. Wilson wants it right in the middle of everything. West has been working on this plan, and he's gotten Wilson's approval for it. And West, in the middle of this, is offered the presidency of MIT, and Wilson says, "No, no, no, no. you stay. You stay. I'll back you up." And then he double crosses him uh, by saying that the, the the graduate school should stay right in the middle of Princeton. And West says, no, there's no room for expansion. He's thinking ahead, mm-hmm. and we should put it out at some distance. And Wilson says, no, 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 no. This is, this is an affront to American democracy <laughs> to have the graduate students separated from the undergraduates. <laughs> what are you talking about? But he reaches this level of, again, like if you are opposing me, right. you know, for you, illegitimate you, are, you are completely, right. yeah, bad. You are bad. Um, but the money comes in from the donors. Uh, which beats Wilson. And at that point, he's like this great important issue he walks away from to become governor of New Jersey, to be put in by the Democratic machine as this these machines would, you know, when they when the going got tough, when they needed a win, they put in their they they would turn to these basically patrician, Mm -hmm. clean front men or sometimes not patrician. You turn to a Theodore Roosevelt. Right. You turn to a Franklin Roosevelt. You turn to an Al Smith. Right. And so in this case, they turn to Woodrow Wilson. And he becomes governor. He's but governor. he's also, before he's backed by the New Jersey Democrat machine, he's backed by this guy named Colonel Harvey who was running Harper's Weekly. Mm-hmm. And every week it would be Woodrow Wilson for president, literally as the headline on the on the magazine. Harvey was very conservative mm-hmm. and was maybe what you would call the front man for the bourbon Wall Street Democrats um, like uh, Thomas Fortune Ryan, uh, August Belmont, people like that. Right. So at, who were hated by the Bryanites. There's a case to be made that there was still some recognizable conservatism in Wilson in the new freedom period, right? This is the, the, in 1912, there's this fight between, yeah, you know, the new freedom of, it's new freedom for Wilson, right? And and new nationalism for TR is the yeah. other way around. No, I, no, it's 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 that. And there was a little sort of, you know, states' rightsy thing. Although this is this is a Wilson part seems to, to be the more conservative candidate. Right. Well, of the two, of those two, not of the three. <laughs> no, 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 not of the three. But I mean, Wilson's totally gone. I mean, Roosevelt has gone haywire to the left. Right. So, and then so Wilson comes into office. He says he becomes president of the United States. And and I would argue George Will is more right than wrong in how he screwed up the 20th century and big chunks of America. And the and so my one of my criticisms of George, even though he you know takes the pain off of Wilson in, in his book, 
I don't think he's harsh enough on him. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, um, you know, Wilson comes in. He's now full. He now says he's a progressive. If you're not a progressive, you better watch out. We're going to do everything that we can. Promises to keep us out of war. That's in, Well, he doesn't really. Doesn't really. But okay. it's implied. It's implied. It's implied. People to believe. Yes, it does. Um, and, and at that point in history, we could have. I mean, the, the stars were aligned to keep us out in, in 19, late 1916. The German submarines were not sinking our ships. There was no great reason for us to go to war then. And it was a dumb war. It was a dumb war. You know, I mean, I my daughter just studied it this year in, in 10th grade. And having to revisit, first of all, the casualties of that war is horrifying. We lose 100,000 in like six months of actual combat. Yeah. But that, I'm not talking about America. I mean, like, and that's a rounding error demographically speaking, compared to what some of these countries in Europe lost. I mean, whole generations of young men are just, you know... Decimated. Just vanish. And for what exactly? Nothing. (laughs) Nothing. It's the dumbest war. Yeah. And so if... And And it's dumb on our side. Yeah, I agree. And that doesn't make me an isolationist. It's just a dumb war. And and the fact that all these Europeans got into it um, because they thought it would be easy and be over in six months. But just... we should have known. We knew what it was. Yeah. So, I, look, but then, all right, so here's the case. So, the on the international stage, Wilson... He wants to dictate the peace. Right. And, and he wants to do it before, you know, House, Colonel House is in Europe in 1915 has brokered a deal. Wilson is, is I, we must be neutral in terms of, of not just word, but in thought and mind. But House has worked out a deal where Wilson was going to propose a peace conference. And the idea was that the Germans were not going to agree to it, that the French and the British were. It was a setup deal. And then when the Germans had refused, but the British and the French had agreed, we would then enter the war in 1915 on their side. Right. But then the but then the French and British wouldn't go along with it for some reason. So World War One. Let's put it this way: World War One screws up the 20th century. I think yes. we can agree with that, right? Because you don't get World War Two if you don't have and the World 21st War and big chunks of the 21st, right? And I think the mishandling of the Treaty of Versailles and the League of Nations stuff. The the I you know I'm not a huge Keynesian on economics, but I think Keynes was right about the consequences of the of reparations the peace, on yes. of the peace. So, you know, this argument that you get—I mean, it's so. Let right, me back up on this because I want to—I want to explain clearly where I'm coming from. One of my great frustrations is. Can I back up? Yeah, go ahead. Going back to Wilson as Southerner. Uh huh. Who was his great hero when he was a kid? Who does he have a framed picture of when he's a kid? Whose life is he reading when the convention is going on in 1912? Gladstone. Gladstone's family was the big, one of the biggest slaveholders in the world, 2,500 slaves, and wanted recognition of the South in 1862. Coincidence? <laughs> I don't think so. All right. Well, then I, I, we're going to play this game. Uh, <laughs> uh, one of my great peeves about Wilson is – and I have so many – is uh, – he actually admired Abraham Lincoln. Yes. Right? He loved the centralizing tendencies of Lincoln. He loved the quashing of civil liberties, the, habe- the suspension of habeas corpus. He liked Lincoln's means. He just didn't like Lincoln's ends, which right. is a total moral perversion, right? The, the, the only morally correct position, by my lights, of Lincoln is he did he, – he had to employ some regrettable means – 
towards a moral end, Mm -hmm. which was keeping the union and and ending slavery and all of that. Wilson says, you know, all that dictatorial stuff that Lincoln did, that was great. It's just a shame that he used it to free the slaves (laughs) and the Confederacy, which is morally retarded in a very serious way. And I don't mean in the – I don't mean to use retarded as a pejorative sense about people with mental disabilities, but it's just – it's morally stunted. And he was, as you were saying, he's a voluptuary of power. Yes. Walter McDougall says somewhere that the, if you, you cannot understand Wilson unless you understand his relationship to power. Power. He loved power. He had this messianic notion that he was the only one entitled to use it because his motives were always pure, but he loved it for its own sake as well. And once, you know, he would change his position. And then the people who had the position, well, we're seeing that nowadays where if, if, Obama or Hillary or 90 percent of the Democratic Party who were opposed to gay marriage 10 years ago right. or said they were. Now, you know, if 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 you're not if you're not flying some rainbow flag on your porch, you're an evil person. Right. So, you know, it's it's but he's he's ahead of the game on that level of 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 you're going to agree with me. And anyone who doesn't agree with the position I now hold for the last five minutes, you're you're total bastard. Right. Okay. So, and uh, just before we move on to the domestic part of it, I believe it's the first sentence of the 1920 book is, or the first paragraph, uh, when someone asked Colonel House for advice about how to get along with Wilson, the advice is find someone in common that you both hate. Yes. Right? <laughs> yes. 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 I mean, he was a hater and he was had no sense of humor by, by any historical count that I can Well, find. actually he does. He's... Uh... He he loved to go to vaudeville shows, and he didn't go straight places. I mean, more about himself. Well, about himself, a little bit, a little bit. He could be a little self-deprecating, but I wonder how much of it was a was was an act. Yeah. But he 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 was so remote from most people. He he would be with his family and one or two advisors, and you couldn't get through to him. He also didn't read the newspapers hmm. or magazines. So, as a president of the United States, very very isolated. House talks about how difficult it was to get through to him. He could get through to him. Other people couldn't get through to him. And after a while, House can't get through of him, through to him. And, you know, one of the reasons is because the second Mrs. Wilson is the Yoko Ono of the Wilson administration. <laughs> and for listeners who don't know, she was actually the first woman president, right? I mean, <laughs> Yoko Ono was the first. No, no, no. I mean, I mean, Edith right. was. You know? yeah, yeah. After his stroke. Right. Uh, he, and... His health history is so poor where he has a stroke in 1896, loses the use of his hand for a while, 1906 or 7, where he is, loses vision in one eye. Doctors say, you, you, you've got to really slow down. You've got to retire. He sp- Talk about golfing, whether it's Trump or Eisenhower or Obama. Wilson, as president, golfs every morning, hmm. works only three or four hours uh, a day. So when he's pushing that League of Nations thing, he's pushing the envelope on his own physical well-being. And that's why he has those big strokes again. Right. OK. So we can save for another podcast, World War One, and our role in it and all the rest. On the domestic front, so – and we've covered the fact that he was racist, which I'm not a huge fan of this retroactive sort of condemning people for the sins of the past when they weren't seen as sins in the same way. I mean, I think you can condemn the racism of the past while at the same time understanding it in its historical context. So at the same time, 
Well, this the, he deserves uh, everything he gets. So I'm not going to defend him on it, but <laughs> I just think it's it's worth pointing out. You know that it's 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 an important part of who he is, whether it's because he's a southerner. Or he's not. That's all. Well, yeah. you know, the song in South Pacific, you've got to be carefully taught right. about prejudice, which means people are carefully taught that. And that's that's the water that the fish swims in. Right. OK. So on the domestic side, you know, so I wrote in my book, you know, and I, I try because it, it's so triggering to people, my book, Liberal Fascism. And it was the smiley face. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> it, it really bothers people. And. <laughs> In all of the reviews, and there were many critical reviews, nobody has ever written anything intelligent that I have seen defending Woodrow Wilson from the charges that I lay down on him, right? And I, some He's of, a man without a party. But he is you – know, what is amazing to me is that when I was working on that book, the New Republic had something like its 75th anniversary or 95th anniversary, whatever the number was, edition – and they had sort of their Mount Rushmore type of founders of American liberalism in the Democratic Party. And Wilson was one of them. He was there with Martin Luther King and FDR and all the rest. And if you go back, the historiography, except for the Bloom book, really, you know, you don't even find a National Review back issues. You have lots of people teeing off on the New Deal. But Wilson kind of gets a pass. And when you read most of the histories of Wilson, it's this weird thing that when they're talking about they talk about all the great things Wilson did and what an impressive guy he is. And then when the bad things happen, all of a sudden, he just kind of disappears for like 50 <laughs> pages. And it's A. Mitchell Palmer or all these other people doing bad things. And he's not responsible for any of them. Well, look at how how much of the presidency he spends not paying attention to the presidency. Mm-hmm. His wife dies. OK, we understand that. OK, he's he's bummed out. Then he Then he spends all his time gaga courting his second wife. I mean, he's really get a room mm-hmm. in these in these love letters, et cetera, et cetera. And and this is this is when his distraction really starts when no one can deal with him. Then he goes off to Europe, right? He goes off to Europe. We're not even talking about a presidential campaign. He goes off to Europe and, and is out of touch with the economy falling apart in the United States of America. Then he goes on the uh, tour to the West to sell the League of Nations. He's on that for three weeks before he collapses. Then he collapses and he's basically out to lunch for the rest of his administration. That's a long time for a president not to be functioning as president when you add them all up. That's all fair. Yes. At the same time, this is a guy more than any other president in American history who the first political scientist, right, the first Ph.D. president, the first academic who prides himself as a student of Bismarck about the role of administration and appointing experts to run things. Oh, yeah. And then his experts do terrible things. Right. He picked these people. So he, I don't, you know, you only have one president. Well, Oh, no. I'm not uh, saying he's, he, he's, he doesn't bear responsibility. The buck stops there. But also he, an, another thing that House, point that House makes about him is he had a one-track mind. So if he's worrying about the war, he forgets about domestic things. Uh, he, he he couldn't walk and chew gum at the same time in regard to issues. So he's he's very flawed in in this wide variety of ways. He wants power, and then otherwise, and then he's like golfing every morning. Well, okay. So I'm gonna I, I keep distracting myself from making my case. Up until Woodrow Wilson's war socialism, in particular, right? You did not have in the United States anything that could be called. 
This is a point that Robert Nisbet makes. Anything that be called identifiably the state in the way that the Europeans mean it, right? This thing that is guiding us, this thing that is controlling every aspect of the economy, this thing that is this something different than mere government. Randolph Bourne talks about this, about how during war, government ceases to be this place where people have arguments and disagreements in terms of checks and balances and competing interests, and it becomes the state. And if you don't support the state, you are a traitor, you're against your country, you are lacking in patriotism and all the rest. And Wilson, in part because of his obsession with power, in part because of his love of sort of Bismarckian and Hegelian nonsense, is the guy who turns the American government from a government into a state, not, not just the administrative state, which he helps create, but he's the, first, he's the first president in American history to openly disparage the U.S. Constitution. Oh, yes. He says he doesn't like it. He says it's founded on a new, new, Newtonian principle. That goes back to 1885. Right. He, remarkable. You get elected back then pulling stuff like that. Yeah, he, yeah, that's right. And he creates – he is more responsible than anybody else for the concept of the living constitution. He's more responsible for the idea that the Supreme Court is the only arbiter of what the constitution actually says. I mean I know we always have, we've always had Mar – since Marbury versus Madison judicial review. But he's the guy who basically says we need to – he has this great line. He says we need to wrestle the constitution into heretofore unimagined ways to give him what he wants. Mm -hmm. And under the war socialism, you have big business and big government in bed together. You have all these dollar-a-year men from big business who get on board for the corporatism of, of, of the war effort. You have the first propaganda ministry in Western civilization in terms of the Committee for Public Information, which, among other, does all this propaganda, does all of this censorship, puts out five and a half million pamphlets supporting essentially Kim Jong Wilson he, they they seized control of the Atlantic cables 4 days after after the armistice that's right that's they right. seized control of the telephone industry etc cetera, etc cetera. you had political prisoners thrown in jail simply for you know they had one guy who made a documentary about the American Revolution that depicted the British in a bad light. How else is an American right. supposed to do that? Right. And I think he got six months in jail. You had this unleashing of jingoism in the country where one guy doesn't stand up for the national anthem. And, shot and he's shot dead. And the jury lets him off. Mm -hmm. You have the American Protective League. I mean, talk about squadristi, right? It's 250,000 people estimated. No one really knows for sure. The Department of Justice gives them the color of federal authority to do these things. Some of them get badges. They do all sorts of I – mean, I'm, I'm not saying that they didn't find every now and then some agents of the Kaiser. There were. But they also beat the crap out of a lot of people and they – Or they, they – they, I think they, they tarred and feathered a minister in Kentucky who had merely said we should pray for the soul of the Kaiser. Which – my understanding is sort of like a that's Christian sort of thing. what you're supposed to do. <laughs> <laughs> and you can go down. I mean, there are these amazingly horrifying stories about another guy was put on trial because he said something about Lenin being really smart. Um, smart is smart. Yes, the smartest leader in the world. Right, brainiest. I think brainiest. Is the word. Yeah. yeah. And then you have these four minute men who are essentially propaganda agents of the government who go into hotel lobbies, street fit carnivals, fairs. And they preach loyalty to, again, Wilson, to Wilson and to the war effort. And there's the demonization of the Germans. And there's also the introduction of the income tax, which I just I don't like. <laughs> well, the, well, the introduction, but then, you know, raising the race to 70 percent. Right. To pay for the war. Not well, not really to pay for the war because you've got all those liberty uh, loans. 
the socialists were saying you shouldn't have the liberty loans. You should let the rich pay for it like all now, you know, tax the rich sort of thing. There's this great passage, and this is from Charles and Mary Beard. Okay. So for listeners who don't know, Charles Beard is one of the – he's actually a much more interesting guy than I long thought he was. But he was one of the great progressive historians, Mm -hmm. was on the wrong side of the progressives in World War I, gets some interesting academic fights. But he's the guy who wrote an economic interpretation of the Constitution, which is this great left-wing attack on the American founding. Um, And he writes – they write – In a series of the most remarkable laws ever enacted in Washington, the whole economic system was placed at his command. Under their provisions, the president was authorized to requisition supplies for the army without stint to fix the prices of commodities so commanded, arrange a guaranteed price for wheat, take possession of the mines, factories, packing houses, railways, steamships, and all means of communication, and operate them through public agencies and license the importation, manufacture, storage, and distribution of all necessities. Power, power, power. All about power. They seize the railroads as well. Which I think starts the beginning of the end of the of the of the railroads as an industry because the rates got raised twenty eight percent. McAdoo was giving away the store to the unions because they didn't want disruptions, et cetera, et cetera. But I think it, I think it, that and the regulation of rates with the Interstate Commerce Commission and all the iterations thereof um, really damage things. Oh, and and McAdoo, another thing McAdoo does is. Money starts to flow out of America when the war starts in 1914. They shut the stock market down from August to December. They say it worked, (laughs) but it seems a bit extreme. (laughs) It seems a bit illegal. Lots of it seems illegal. Yeah. You know, the Constitution basically went on holiday under Wilson. And the reason why – so there there are a bunch of things that – frustrate me about this. Among them, in 1920, that great year, yes. the Republicans run on a return to normalcy mm-hmm. because Americans were fed up with the rationing and the propaganda and the war inflation. And, and inflation and all sorts of things that – and I'm, I'm not sure a lot of Americans were voting for return to normalcy because they wanted to get Eugene V. Debs out of prison. No. But uh, you know the chaos and the statism that was on full display under Wilson – And then fast forward to FDR's 1944 State of the Union address, his Economic Bill of Rights address, Mm -hmm. where he says, you know, we're wrapping up the war and if we – Let's get the old gang back together. Yeah. If we we return to, quote, the normalcy – that's his word – of the interwar years. He's talking about the 1920s under Coolidge. Where they and, and Harding, where they let out the political prisoners, where they stopped with the rationing, where they stopped with the economic command and control of the entire economy, where the economy took off. FDR says if we return to that normalcy, we will be surrendering to fascism here at home while we're trying to defeat it abroad. And this intellectual brain fart that makes it sound like the freedom and prosperity of the 1920s was fascism, but the stuff that happened with the political violence and the censorship and and the propaganda under Wilson was liberalism, has done enormous damage. And so the second point is, when FDR runs in 32, he runs explicitly promising to revive all of the stuff they did during World War I to fight the Great Depression. And so many of the agencies that they create to fight the Great Depression were basically just retreads of Wartime agencies. Uh, William Luchtenberg has a fantastic essay called, what was it, New Deal's Moral Analog of War. And basically what they're doing is they're taking 
everything from the commodities trading boards, all of that stuff. And they're applying it to a perpetual notion that the, the federal government should be mobilized as if at war for domestic economic stuff. And this has been, I would argue, the central idea of American liberalism ever since. Just look at Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez with her Green New Deal stuff. They argue the moral equivalent of war ever since William James proposed it. There's always some emergency, some crisis. Has been the mobilizing theory of how government should work ever since. And I think it's Wilson and some philosophers, which we can't get into, who unleash this on the country. And so I think George Will is basically right about how Wilson, both internationally and domestically, did enormous damage. it's not a war, it's a depression, it's the climate, it's... The children. It's it's always (laughs) the children. Right. What's the new frontier? Kennedy's new frontier is explicitly a moral equivalent of war argument. The space race is a moral well, equivalent. Bear of war. any, pay any price, bear any burden. Right. Ask yeah. not what you can do for your country. Um, right. And he's, they've passed the torch from the World War II generation to this generation. We have to fight the same way. Uh, Jimmy Carter, when he's wearing that adorable fetching sweater in the Oval Office address, he says uh, the energy crisis is the new moral equivalent of war. Obama, you know, all that Sputnik moment, all of that stuff was moral equivalent of war arguments. And the weird thing that I just I feel like I'm taking crazy pills is that for now a century, the damage that Woodrow Wilson did to this country, both in terms of understanding the Constitution and understanding that command and control statism is not freedom, is is a is this wild misconception out there. I mean, the, there are millions of people who think that the progressivism of Woodrow Wilson and what he unleashed and of the New Deal defines what it means to be in favor of freedom when it's the opposite of that. Why would you want to have only a post office equivalent of everything or the post office as it was before FedEx and, you know, right. well, Brown? We, liberalism today wants to live why, – Why would you world, want that for, for, your, for your, for your health care or anything else? Right. But that's I, – I, I was saying to my wife the other, other night, I said – what if in 19 – oh, I don't know, 1991 or something, Bush or Clinton had said, we're going to use this internet thing to create uh, a way to search every piece of knowledge and everything is going to be added into it. And you'll know these things within a, a second and you'd get directions on how to go. I think we were trying to find their way through Pennsylvania, <laughs> and, which is not easy. And 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 – and this is our equivalent of going to the moon. And at this point, it would still not be done if the federal government was doing it. Right. And it wouldn't work. And it would cost like a $100 billion trillion. And Google, for all its faults, and the other, all the other internet people did it. And you want to do that with everything else going forwards or backwards or sideways? It's nuts. But it's about power. And what about freedom? But that's about it's, the, it's this idea of power, and the state should have the power. And 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 up until Woodrow Wilson, that is not how American presidents talked. It's not how our government was organized. It's not how either of our political parties were organized. Even the status, quote unquote, or the oppressors, they wanted local oppressors. They didn't want national <laughs> well, oppressors. Local oppressors, you can move right. And and so anyway, that is my abiding case against against Woodrow Wilson. I guess my question for well, you is well. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt, not exactly Mr. Conservative, is fuming about Wilson in probably 1915 or so. And he says, Wilson is such a danger. He's more of a danger than 
Brian. Mm-hmm. And TR had hated Brian. The Republicans had hated Brian for the longest time because Brian just appeals to these doofuses. And and Wilson appeals to these high minded people and, and is and is really driving the bus on this. And this is this is the real danger. And that's that's really what he did. The professor in politics, the expert, the disinterested person, the idealist. Or Patricia O'Toole's book on Wilson just came out, The Moralist. Right, right. So everything is is moral, even though it's about power, etc. She makes the point that he's not a religious moralist. He's a secular moralist, mm-hmm. by the way. That's interesting because he, he did talk the talk every now and then on the Christian stuff. Right. You know, he, there's a speech where he's talking to the YMCA back when that really actually really was a pretty Christian organization yeah. and says part of their goal is to Christianize the world. But that could be part of the imperial thing or the moral, you know, the moralist stuff and a way to appeal to them. I don't know. But the, the, the creation of the state, you hear people, I mean, think globally, act locally. Well, everything that government takes in destroys every other voluntary association right. from the fraternal organizations to the family. It really does. And that's not the great way to live. You can't share your, your hopes and dreams and memories with with a government agency. Okay, quick question, because we gotta wrap up. I know we're going along and I just I like nerding out on this stuff. I have a couple weird historical fetishes that I keep bringing up that no one else seems to share my interest in. One of them which I bring, I brought up with George Will, I brought up with Elias Shapiro is this thing about whether Oliver Wendell Holmes would have been a judicial restraint guy if the progressives weren't doing what he wanted them to do. That I'm not going to ask you to ask, but answer. But the other one is I was taught in high school and in college that Woodrow Wilson was this great champion of democracy, right? That was the whole self-determination thing. And when I read his stuff about self-determination in the context of where progressives were at the time, I get the distinct sense that he really wasn't talking about democracy. He was talking about a much more nationalistic thing where Serbia for the Serbs, Slovakia for the Slovaks, and whatever system that was right for their nature or their character, that was fine, whether it was democracy or not. Where do you come down on that? Well, he's happy to see the Kaiser gone and the Tsar gone, and most people were. With the 14 points, his father was a strict taskmaster and at one time said to him, use language, Tommy, as a rifle, not as a shotgun. And you take a look at the wording of the 14 points. What the hell does any of this mean? Yeah, It's so contradictory. Autonomy for the people of Austria-Hungary by the respect for its existence. Well, it all blew apart, stuff like that. What does... What does access to the sea for Poland mean? Right. What do any of these things mean? And then it got to being the Germans thinking they're going to get one thing and then they got something out and then they feel like they're they're double crossed. So what did it mean abroad? I think he did want democracy, but also he saw himself as the leader not only of America, but of the world. People who are into this cult of leadership with themselves as leader, see themselves as the embodiment of the will of the people. And that is the truest meaning of democracy. Mm-hmm. Okay? So democracy means all the I am, I know what is best for the people. He goes to Europe and he says, 
Clemenceau, you don't know what the French people want. Lloyd George, you don't know. They just won big elections, and he had been repudiated right. in the 1918 elections. And he pulls the same stuff with the people of Italy when the Italian delegates pull up and leave over over the territorial disputes. And they, he soon finds out that the people of Italy are perfectly fine with their leaders as compared to him. So it's all about democracy means people support me. Right. That's sort of what I'm getting at is yes. that he thinks authenticity is what a crowd has when it agrees with him. Mm-hmm. And if that is if that agreement is expressed democratically, he's in favor of democracy. When it's not expressed democratically, then the democ- the democratic mechanisms are illegitimate and there's something more, you know, he's, you know, he's got this Hegelian, you know, this sort of Volksgemeinschaft thing, right? You see it after the 1914 primaries, which don't go the way Theodore Roosevelt wants, where he writes confidentially to a friend that I'm rethinking this primary thing. Uh, they should only be used in, in, in the right, the right Occasions. When they agree with me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So, all right, last question. What do you think explains the fact that, I mean, if you asked your typical educated person in the middle of almost any decade up until the 1980s at least, if not in the 1990s, who were the great American presidents of the 20th century, Wilson would rank really, really high. Very high. And, I mean, the Hoover book is a good example of the that weird monograph that Sigmund Freud does about Woodrow Wilson yeah, with the uh, bullet yeah it was, that was very strange not not Steve McQueen by the way <laughs> and there's you know and again when I was working on my first book I was you know all of this conservative stuff he was, he was very popular when I was a kid the local Democratic club was the Woodrow Wilson club and then Kennedy got shot and it became the JFK club but Wilson was was the man for Democrats for a very long time what there was a terrible 1944 movie about him oh, i never saw that oh don't <laughs> <laughs> um but what um what do you think explains there was this even among ideological conservatives i i found very little from the founders of national review criticizing wilson huh basically it starts with the new deal and for me the new deal is just a continuation of 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 world war 1 wilson is extremely successful uh in in new progressive power grabbing legislation twice he does it twice not in the second term he's too busy with the war well he's 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 grabbing power that way but with the agencies and the programs uh right when he starts oh and he does it by wielding power and he does it in um he does it by dispensing patronage and also using and and the personal approach oratory to congress going to congress personally and the third thing is use of something which had never been used before which is to declare all the big issues caucus issues mm-hmm. so the the democrats would all get together they take a vote and then everybody had to then go in united there'd be no dissenters and so it was really ham-fisted presidential use of power over the congressional use of power which exceeded anything Theodore Roosevelt had ever done with a, with the bully pulpit so he was very uh, he in in New Jersey he was a good schmoozer with the republicans and he completely ignores this in 1918 1919 1920 where it's just you know my way or the highway but, a, a deliberate deliberate affronts to the republicans 
and and it's just like they must be defeated and destroyed it's it's he has a bad bent to him with power from the beginning but he goes haywire at the end he in 8, 1908 he writes in constitutional government how when you're preparing something a president he has to work with the senate uh you know they they're not going to change much and you have to work with them from the beginning and get their assent and he's describing everything he does not do at all with right. the league of nations but so his major foreign policy initiative is a failure absolutely it was a messed up war um the republicans have to date that was still their best decade in 100 years you know, all of the gains that the Republicans got under Obama in 2010 and 2012 and 2014, all we did was re, all they did was reach parity with where the Republicans were in the 1920s. And yet, for most of the next 75, 80 years, he is remembered as a near great president. And I, I'm just trying to understand why you think that consensus lasted so long and do you think because it's going to go new, away? New Deal historians. Yeah. And he's sort so, of the John the Baptist to he's FDR's the John Christ. the Baptist to FDR, and it's another way of uh, well the UN. Yeah. When I was a kid, you know those UNICEF cards were big. Yeah, me too. Okay, right. Yeah. And and the UN was something you thought was was going to work, and Adlai Stevenson was there yelling at the Soviets, and and the world was going to be a better place for it. And Woodrow Wilson had you know invented this great thing before. Actually, he hadn't invented it at all. He cobbled together all sorts of everybody else's ideas. But, you know, his rejection was he was this martyrdom figure of mm-hmm. liberalism. Liberals tend to always win now, okay? Right. But here's this 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 Christ crucified yeah. of liberalism. Uh, Stabbed and, in and, the back. And and it really can make the Republicans look bad. These, you know, they, they, they had the chance for war, for peace, and they turned their back on it, blah, 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 blah. I don't think it would have made a dime's bit of difference in keeping out Hitler or or Mussolini or anything like that. I don't think it would have accomplished anything. You don't think if the reparations were not as Oh, that's draconian? a separate issue. Yeah. I mean, the League is Also, why is the League incorporated in the peace treaty? Why not a separate agreement to go in? Right. That's a good point. There's no reason why it has to be all of of a peace. Yeah. And you're not even it's a peace treaty with Germany, and the peace treaty says what they, could go wrong. They can't even come into the league right. until 1926. Right, right. No, I mean, I, I just, from my perspective, there's just nothing but either failure or tyranny involved in the Wilson administration. And look, I get progressives, child labor laws, woohoo! But I'm very much a Charles Murray, Tom Sowell guy on this. Is that most of the really good progressive reforms? We're lagging indicators. Countries that really need child labor don't ban child labor. It's only when you get rich enough that you can start saying, gosh, I can't believe anyone still is using child labor. And you get you ban it, ban the last five percent. And that's the history of a lot of these kinds of reforms. Anyway, we've gone way too long. Uh, there are people um, pounding on the door and it's not usually the way it is where it's Jack pounding to get out. It's someone actually wants to get in. David Pietrusha. Thank you so much for doing this, everybody. Dakuya, Dakuya. So that's Polish, little Polish lingo there. Um, It's uh, it's great to have you on. Thank you for doing this, everybody. We'll have all a list of all of this stuff in the show notes. And uh, thanks again for coming on. Thank you. 
And that's all. There, it's over. If you're wondering why I, Jack Butler, the producer slash almost co-host of this show, did these intros and outros, it's that it's that um, I forgot. Jonah did like a brief one for this episode, for a brief intro and outro for this episode, and a brief outro for the last one. But I lost the file. I don't know what happened to it. So I'm doing this instead, and I had fun with it. But please subscribe. And I know that Jonah doesn't listen to The Remnant, so he'll only find out about this when people start tweeting about it. So that'll be funny. Uh, A universe full of surprises. Some of you will understand what that means. Others of you will not. But, yeah. So please subscribe to The Remnant on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, uh, Podcatcher. I learned that there's a podcast website or app called Castro, which is strange, but if you if, this, if that's how you get it, look, it's fine with us. And sign up for the G-File at reagan35x.com. Uh, what else? I mean, I could, there's all sorts of things I could say. I'm really, I could really abuse the, this, the privilege of this position, but I know that most of you will stop listening at this point anyway. Um, at least I'm not going to read another ad. I know none of you like that. So I'm just going to end this here. And, uh, <laughs> we'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Shut up. What are you talking about? Who are you? There's only one of you. What? Uh, nerp, nerp, nerp. Oh, as long as we're embarrassing Jonah. <laughs> Easy killer. Um, it's Pietrusha. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh. But, but it's one you, of those names I just say in my head, you know, more well, than I say well, It probably doesn't come up in conversation that much. Well, I've been on TV with you a few times. Yeah. I should have remembered, but probably Glenn okay. mispronounced it too. Everyone mispronounces it. Say it again. Pietrusha. It's really three syllables. Pietrusha. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Is that because it's Polish? It's Piet- Polish, yeah. Pietrusha. Yeah. No, Petrusha. Sha. Well, I'm 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 only going to I'm only going to say your last name maybe once or twice. That's and then the it'll be deal. David for the rest well, of the it. Other, the, other, the other rule I have is pick a pronunciation and stick, stick with, with it, it yeah. and I won't correct you. <laughs>